Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Shaolin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology. And in this special season, Future of Tech tackles generative AI with interviews with some of the industry's leading thinkers. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes, because what you hear on the show might just be a glimpse into the future. Generative AI has exploded onto the world stage, and it has become the tech buzzword. But how does Gen AI impact enterprise-level organizations? Today's guest, Charles Lamana, is the Corporate Vice President of Business Apps and Platforms at Microsoft. Charles is optimistic about the ability of enterprises to incorporate Gen AI into their products and systems, but recognizes that along with reward comes risk. Tune in to hear more about Charles' insight into Gen AI and how he thinks it will influence the future of tech. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. I'm very happy to uh, host Charles Lamana. Thank you for having me, Avishai. Super excited for the conversation today. We are going to speak about uh, generative AI and about Microsoft when it comes to Gen AI and everything related to this market because it's a hypey market. There are many things that, we have that I'd like to cover. We're not just going to cover the technology behind it, but also some uh, ethics and maybe some uh, possible directions that the market is growing to. Before we start, with your permission, I'd like to walk you through the history, your own history. Do tell me how you found yourself uh, dealing with the technology. Absolutely. So uh, I would say I always wanted to be an engineer, and I think I tried every other form of engineering before settling on computer science. I tried chemical engineering, aerospace engineering, um, and some variants of, of other fields. But uh, it wasn't until kind of really got a chance to do programming in a university that I got hooked. And that's kind of what switched me over halfway through college. And it's been uh, programming and coding ever since. And I think I've been super fortunate in uh, coming out to Seattle area after graduation, which at the time wasn't that big of a tech hub, but between AWS and Azure and all the other big technology companies having presence here has really become a, a major area for enterprise software and cloud software in particular, and uh, been able to bounce around and do a couple different things in that time. You you founded at a certain uh, point in time your own company. Can you share some uh, some background around it? What did it do? Absolutely. So back in 2012, uh, we had a company called Metrics Hub. And it was based just out of downtown Seattle, an area called South Lake Union, if folks know where that is. Um, and it was focused on public cloud cost management and health monitoring. And it was very much at the right place at the right time because every company was going through a big shift in developing their public cloud plan. And a big challenge and blocker to that plan was understanding how their costs would scale and how they could manage and reduce those costs. So. Metrics Hub made an easy approach 
to get a view of those costs, but with a lens about what it meant from a service reliability, service health, and service stability perspective, because you can't just focus on cost without also knowing what it would do to the overall business. So we did that. And just in a hundred days after launch, got over 1700 customers, um, because I think everybody was so hungry for a solution. And then Microsoft saw what we were doing and said, why don't you come over and do that as part of Azure, um, which is where I worked for five years before I then switched over to business applications at Microsoft uh, five years ago. So I've been at Microsoft just over 10 years now. Great. And today you're general manager responsible for? For what we call business applications and platforms, which is Dynamics 365. So all of our CRM and ERP and HCM applications, as well as the Power Platform. So our low-code offering um, for app development, workflow automation, robotic process automation, those types of things. So before diving into you know the exact uh, things that you are doing, I'd like to pick your brain um, as someone that is in the industry for quite a long time. W- why Gen AI is so disruptive? What 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 happened? The big thing is it's just a non-linear, non-incremental improvement in a core technology, core science. So that doesn't happen very often. And I think this idea of these large language models built on the transformer technology and just how capable they would be is something we didn't really see coming. And in my team, we had a lot of natural language understanding and speech research and those types of things, but none of them were even remotely close to what a general purpose foundation model was able to do off the shelf with GPT 3.5 or ChatGPT or GPT-4 models now. So I think the the non-linear, non-incremental science was a component. The other reason we think it's going to be a big deal is that it changes really all layers of the programming stack. The first is user experience. So we see that we see that with ChatGPT. Instead of you know clicking around with the mouse and menu bars, instead you can now use natural language to interact with a program. And this is going to have all kinds of ramifications about how software is built and how software is consumed both for consumers as well as at work. And this is kind of comparable really to the initial creation of the graphical user interface way back when, um, say Windows 95 really driving it mainstream uh, and replacement of terminals and you know green screen terminals and command lines. So it's gonna completely change the user experience. But we're also seeing it change how logic and programs themselves are being authored. If folks have seen things like these new agents or even what ChatGPT is doing with plugins, the large language model is able to self-assemble and self-direct program execution and control flow without having a programmer specify it. In this kind of emergent execution, emergent workflow, emergent logic is going to change the middle tier of a lot of consumer and commercial applications as well. So those two things are two very big shifts, very big changes which don't normally happen at the same time, but they are all because of one piece of technological breakthrough. So, you know, just to go into history, I think the revolution of uh, UI started even before Windows 95, started with the Windows 3 uh, (laughs) X or 3.11, yeah, Uh, fighting OS 2. Anyways, at what point in time Microsoft or yourself uh, believe that uh, it's a game changer rather than yet another technology that we're going to absorb, play with, you know, um, as so many others before. Yeah, so I would say 
we uh, we first saw the potential, and we knew there was a lot of potential a few years ago. I think it's about four years since Microsoft did the initial investment in OpenAI, and it's about a little over two years since we shipped our first production software using GPT-3. And that was the first version of GitHub Copilot, as well as some capabilities in the Power Platform. We announced at Build 2021. And at the time, both of those were very interesting and, and compelling use cases, but I wouldn't say completely reimaginative and transformative, um, but it was, I was kind of dabbling in it. About a year ago, there was a connection on the Microsoft side where we kind of reviewed what GPT 3.5 and what ultimately became GPT 4, what that was capable of. And at that time is when we really knew that this was not going to be a small change or an isolated change. It was going to be a big change and it was going to be comprehensive and impact every single part of software that we build at Microsoft. And so really those last 12 months, we've done a hard pivot and gone big and broad and investing really in a way that we hadn't in the past, taking advantage of what we've learned over the last few years to really bring all these capabilities to all of our products. And if you go back to January, 2023 through June of 2023, we've had something like 30 plus co-pilot related announcements. And that's all built on top of that multi-year investment and really that big investment starting about a year ago. Lately, there are kind of two camps, you know, the ones that are saying that uh, this is the end of humanity and, and we're bringing it uh, closer and closer to a point where machines will take over. And the ones that see great uh, advantages in harnessing uh, the, the, the topic as a whole um, and, and on the contrary, feel that this will, uh, you know, advance us and bring us to a different place in, uh, in the history or lifetime of uh, humanity. Where, where are you? Um, in the in you know between those it's i'm definitely an optimist and i think optimism is appropriate here so uh, i think really what we're seeing here is the next wave of tools and technologies to augment and extend and enrich human capability and if we look at what the steam engine did for manual or or physical labor these types of ai models really can represent the same level of acceleration and, and augmentation for cognitive tasks and digital tasks. So I don't see it as something that's in replacement of or capable of replacing people in absolute terms and comprehensive terms. Um, and I think that's just because it's not right now, it's not AGI. It doesn't feel like it's just short of AGI. There's a lot to go until we get to that point. Um, and most of the use cases which have gotten traction and usage are the ones where it's human directed and human assisted, like what ChatGPT does, what GitHub Copilot does, what we've done for Dynamics 365 Copilot or Power Platform Copilot. Those are all AI experiences which make humans more productive. And depending on the use case, we have some great stats like automation in the workplace is be able to be done twice as fast using the Copilot features in our Power Automate product. Or GitHub Copilot can help developers when starting projects from the beginning and writing code 45, 50% more productive. So all about making humans more productive, not replacing humans. And the consequence of this 
long-term is going to be increased abundance and increased availability of goods and services, just like all major forms of tools and technology have provided in the past. If you look at what we're able to enjoy these days, the, the sheer number and volume of, you know, clothes and furniture and uh, food, that's all made possible because tools and technology, which boosted human productivity over the last 200 years. This is yet another tool in that long arc of human history, making us more capable and able to complete tasks faster. And the consequence is lower prices and more opportunity and more goods and more services for more people. So in many ways, do you see it as a tool also for new entrepreneurs or you believe that uh, we won't see any, any, any new entrepreneurs in the, in the near future because everything will be generated by uh, AI? I, well, I think we're going to see a ton of new businesses, new products, and new entrepreneurs as a result of this technology shift. And the big players like Microsoft and others will, of course, ha- apply this technology to their products and to new products they launch. But uh, if, we look at, if we look at past technology shifts, the cloud unlocked an absolute Cambrian explosion of SaaS companies and enterprise software companies. The personal computer unlocked a massive number of consumer and enterprise software as well. This platform shift will be no different. I think we'll see tens of thousands of startups and thousands of large companies emerge because of this technology. And I think existing companies will be more efficient and more productive because of it. And uh, I think that's what we consistently see in tech. It's every generation of technology is democratized faster, accessible faster. And I think this is going to be no different. And one of the things that we're really heartened by at Microsoft is the fact that these large language models and experiences like ChatGPT are so available around the globe already. We already see so many customers uh, outside the US, outside of technology, taking and applying them to deliver interesting and compelling experiences. So let me maybe push you to um, to an uncomfortable position. Um, those those uh, solutions are being driven by the web scalers, uh, obviously Microsoft and uh, AWS and Google. Is this uh, the sole um, you think territory of those giants, or do you see also um, two guys in a garage uh, can at some point influence this? Uh, mega industry? I see both. And the they'll probably be at different layers in the stack. And as an example, if it if it costs a billion dollars to to train one of these big foundation models, it probably is going to require investment from a company with large amounts of capital, which is probably going to be a bigger company. But what's amazing about the foundation models is that they make it easy to use AI because it's just an API away. That's one of the things that we really kind of internalized is we don't have an advantage by creating our own machine learning models for most of these tasks anymore. We are going to use the same type of foundation models as everybody else. And maybe we'll do some tuning and maybe we'll do some retrieval augmentation generation and other basic ways to improve its effectiveness. But at its core, we're all going to be using the same model, much like how at the core, we all use the same CPUs and GPUs. So what that means is higher in the stack, building on top of those AI models, 
we're going to see a ton of different application offerings. And I think we're already starting to see this with the first waves of AI first, gen AI first companies. You have companies like Jasper for marketing content and marketing workflow. If companies like Typeface for marketing content and design and management, really just launching and adopting this Gen AI first approach and kind of you have mid journey and others. So I think there's a lot of good examples and it's going to probably play out somewhat similar to what we've seen for the public cloud where, you know, there's not 10,000 different large scale IaaS providers, but there are 10,000 different commercial SaaS providers that build on top of the IaaS providers. And most of the economic value will probably be on top of those uh, repeatable and horizontal platforms. Which is raising another interesting topic in my head. Um, you've mentioned enterprises. What do you see their role or how can they uh, harness um, Gen AI to be beneficial for them? I think we're going to see every department and every line of business and every enterprise, not just technology companies, adopt this tool, generative AI, to really dramatically accelerate and enhance their productivity. And what, as some examples, marketing departments that use Gen AI will be able to do more marketing campaigns, which are more targeted and more efficiently created. Or legal departments, which use Gen AI, will be able to create more content, more documents, more contracts per employee than those that do not. Or finance departments that use Gen AI will be able to do accounts payable and receivable and procurement and collections and so on uh, more efficiently because of this tool, because of this capability. So that that's kind of what we see happening. And this is very much like the original digitization of the enterprise, right? If you go back 70 years ago, not all departments had any kind of digital presence at all. Um, really, it was all highly manual, highly pen and paper, highly human oriented. And over time, every single part of every single enterprise, whether it was manufacturing or energy or legal or professional services or transportation, every single department used digital technology. This is that next step. Everything is digitized. Now you can apply Gen AI to almost everything in every company. And you know, you still will be pouring concrete and manufacturing cars and flying planes and Gen AI is probably not going to fundamentally change that, but all the back office and front office functions will be uh, significantly boosted and accelerated because of this technology. And I would say that's probably a very good thing given the overall tight labor market inflation. This will help us continue to scale businesses um, and continue to make uh, businesses more productive uh, without having to compromise on quality of service um, over time. So... A quick follow-up. One of the topics that um, is probably high, at least in, in, in the sense of how, how can you take an enterprise and educate all the employees how to use it? Um, it's easy when you're speaking about technology that is out there for years and you're expecting universities already to master it and then you have you know new graduates and they all speak now Kubernetes and stuff. 20 years back when, when there was you know one cloud guy out there uh, it was uh, harder. So the same phenomena is happening now. So how, how can you educate, maybe give an example about your own teams? How, how do you make them exposed to the full potential um, and, and, and the creativity around it? 
So one of the things that we've done is we've adopted a lot of training and learning opportunities for our organization. So in my team, there's about 5,000 folks. And what we've done is uh, for two days already in 2023, we've taken the whole team offline for what we called AI day, where we had speakers come from across the industry and inside of the company and do presentations. Originally, the presentations were as simple as, here's what a foundation model is. Here's what a large language model is. Here are, here's how uh, adaptation works for the large language models, things that simple. Um, but now it's fairly complex. Um, and the second one that we did that, um, because there's a lot of prior art, there's a lot of expertise out there, and there's a lot of results from experimentation and shipping products. So, so we've committed and invested in training and learning. We've also made the hard change and this is much more a technology statement, but we made the hard change of saying at least 50% of new feature development needs to be generative AI related. And in my team, we, we kind of have uh, various systems easily track in a highly agile way, like what roughly is the team working on? And you can quickly see over the last year that shift taking place. And in a lot of circumstance, we're leading for, from kind of the the cutting edge of using this technology. So we're discovering uh, new approaches and new ways of doing things. So like low rank adaptation or LoRa, which is now the prevailing way to do tuning of large language models. We literally did that inside of Microsoft before it even was a name, before we even published the research paper. Or what's now broadly known as retrieval augmentation generation or RAG, we were doing that before there even was a broadly accepted and known term. So. We're experimenting and learning and figuring out what we need to have working code. And the big thing, kind of all of that, which I would encourage everybody that is listening is just to really internalize how fast this is moving and how you have to move at that pace. Um, So already just our products that we've shipped, we already have over 40,000 organizations using our generative AI features in production. So this isn't something that's gonna be a 10 year shift. Like the cloud shift is glacial compared to how fast the generative AI shift is going to be. And it doesn't mean every company needs to go build their own models or even call the APIs of models, but it could be as simple as adapting gen AI applications, platforms, and tools um, where it makes sense for the business. Um, because this is something that's gonna happen over the next 10 months, not the next 10 years. Well, this is so very true. Now. In, in that sense, exactly in the adaptation and the usage, and as you said, you know, all the... How, how do you address the, uh, f- I wouldn't call it fear, but maybe the, the issue that is raising um, almost in every article out there about I- IP leakage? So now, do I own my IP if half of it was developed by some AI? Um, is it now publicly knowledge, everything that I'm uh, using? So h- how, how do you address those? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two, maybe three major components. So the, the first is data our customers, say at Microsoft, provide to our generative AI features. And what we've adopted for all of our enterprise software, because this is what customers expect, is their data stays their data. That means we never use customer data to train the model. And this this is really important because once you use data to train the model, 
you sort of lose control over it. You can't really isolate it to just one customer. So all of our per customer configuration and machine learning, like say around rankers and others, has to exist entirely outside the large language model. And this is a guarantee Microsoft makes. And this, this is how we've been able to unblock rapid adoption of our capabilities because we go to customers and say, the same data privacy and protection guarantees you have today for all your Microsoft Cloud products, those same guarantees continue for the generative AI features. So that's kind of item one. Second is how we build our models. So we make sure to curate and build our models in like an ethical and sourced way um, over time. And where we do things like reinforcement learning, human feedback, we do it in a generalized way well, where we're not using any customer data to go do that. So that's kind of a second piece. And the third is the content that we generate. And this varies like by product by product, but we publish kind of our perspective on who owns and what uh, what content is owned when it's generated by these models. And I think that that third one is going to be an interesting one, which will increasingly be, I think, legislated and regulated to be figured out. Because I think we're we're all as a, as a society working through what exactly that means. Um, but the good news is um, for a lot of these scenarios, that's not really a big challenge, right? If you're generating artwork, that may be irrelevant. But if you're, say, helping generate a contract more efficiently or summarizing an email thread or a meeting or um, generating like a sales pitch, which you're using internally, um, it's not really, that's not something that most companies really view as um, something that um, basically they wouldn't want to have generated by an AI. So without harming your um, bonus for next year or this year, can you share with me? Um, so I, I was expecting software from you every X weeks or every X month. Are you now doubling it? Are you telling me that you'll be able to uh, provide me, um, I don't know, twice as much or um, twice as fast? or three times faster, I don't know what, or is it something? So how, how, let's say, from an R&D perspective, what is the expectations from you when the organization is addressing your uh, KPIs? Yeah, I think the big thing is it's going to vary based on where the product is in its life cycle. And so what we've seen is net new projects see a substantial boost in productivity because of the AI tools. So if you're going and doing like file new repo, you know, creating entirely new uh, source control and you're starting from scratch, you get incredible productivity benefits. Two times faster is entirely possible today based on current technology. If you are in an existing code base, which has been around for a while, which a lot of the products that my team works on are, you're not gonna get a two time benefit. And that's because mo the developers aren't spending like 100% of their time writing code every week because they're, you know, they're investigating bugs, they're reprogramming bugs reported by customers, working on live site issues, doing design architecture planning, coordinating work with a team of 500 people. So there's a lot more overhead, which is not yet fully enhanced through generative AI. So what, what our expectations are is near term, 10 to 15% productivity boost, which I will very gladly take, pushing closer to 25% productivity boost over the next 12 to 18 months. 
which for my group is game changing. Um, with 5,000 people, that's like having an extra 1,200 people. Um, so that that is, and for us, where our customers are always asking us for much more features and capabilities that we can possibly build, that really starts to unlock and accelerate the business. And if you go look at the the broader technology market to be competitive, you're going to have to adopt these tools, not just build these tools. You have to adopt these tools internally. So, yeah. So my team basically basically entirely uses GitHub Copilot, entirely uses a chat GPT like experience we have for helping us when on call and investigating issues and understanding the code base. It's not ChatGPT itself. It's something separately internally built on top of the models that we use. Um, and we already are experimenting with other tools like Runway for demo video generation or um, other uh, like Microsoft 365 Copilot for presentation generation and design enhancement. So everywhere we can, we're trying to use this um, to boost our productivity. Um, and I like also also the um, the kind of gradual uh, efficiency plan, which uh, works hand in hand actually with the uh, assumption I made to my team. So thank you for that. Now you've mentioned earlier low code, no code. Do you think that now moving w- uh, into an, an, a new realm and and Gen AI, as you said, it's it's more intuitive. It's the end of low code, no code, or you still see it as something that um, will be used. It's the best thing to ever happen to low code, no code. Assuming that as a product, you respond to it. So if you look at low code, no code historically, it's been drag and drop. What you see is what you get, clicks not code. So basically a visual programming environment. So if you want to build an app or you want to build a workflow, you're dragging blocks and connecting them. Now, what Gen AI has enabled us to do is to empower developers, low-code developers, to use natural language and examples and metaphors to create solutions. So these are all things we've already shipped in our Power Platform offering. So in Power Apps, I can do something as simple as asking, I want to create an inspection application that my company will use to review cars that were damaged in accidents. And I want to track the location where I've done the inspection, I want to work on mobile or, or tablets, you can just write that in text, just like you'd write a requirement document. And we will create the first version of the application automatically with a backing data schema and security and a responsive mobile application that works on iPads, iPhones, Android devices, and more. You can, of course, then go drop into low code to edit it, but it's game-changing how much faster you can use. And we have the same thing for creating robotic process automation and workflows, creating chatbots, and creating websites and web pages. And you can even use metaphor and simulate to do design. So as an example, you could say something like, give me a website that looks and feels like a modern web app and maybe something like Airbnb. You can just say that and you'll get a view that looks and feels just like you were probably imagining, just on natural language. So it's as if you're talking to a professional designer or a professional developer, and you can use the same language you'd use with a human to get started and to edit. And already, we announced the first version of this. We shipped it in November of last year. 
just an incredible productivity boost for our users. It is the single biggest enhancement we've ever done in the Power Platform. And the Power Platform is the, is the loading, leading low-code, no-code offering in the market with the most users for app development and BI and automation. And this is completely changing the game for us. So it will look, low-code, no-code will look very different over the next five years. But the concept of empowering more people to participate in development, it's more needed than ever. Um, so that's kind of how what our view is, and that's what we're seeing over the last nine months or so. I, I have a quote from uh, Paul Graham who said that maybe what AI eliminates is not uh, programming jobs, but middle management jobs. Because companies can be so much smaller that they don't need so many layers of management. Um, without causing you any troubles with some colleagues of yours, what's your perception about it? Yeah, I think um, two things I would say is uh, over time in programming, simplification of programming has only created more jobs. Like if we go from punch cards to binary to assembly to C to JavaScript and TypeScript, the programming languages have abstracted more and more of the complexity and it hasn't reduced the number of developers. In fact, it's dramatically expanded the need for developers. And every year there are more fully employed developers than there were the year before. And it gets harder and harder for companies to find them. So I think generative AI in general, I would certainly agree is I don't think it's going to remove the need for programming jobs. And if anything, we'll probably increase the need for them over time. And just people will probably increasingly use Gen AI tools as opposed to writing code directly. So I think that's definitely true. I think productivity will also boost, which means it, a team of the same size can probably do a lot more than the past. Um, but the, what I think will be true is if the number of programmers increases over time, and I think there tends to be big and small companies, I think there'll be equal parts, middle management, maybe, you know, instead of a eight to one ratio, there'll be like a 10 or 12 to one ratio or something like that. Um, but yeah, but I say, I, I think it's a safe bet. If the last 20 years have taught me anything, it's a safe bet that all up employment in technology and programming will only increase of programmers themselves and the management of programmers. I agree. By the way, when you look at the culture, do you think that work-life balance is going to be changed in the sense that, uh, let's assume we're doing twice as much, uh, will we work only half a week? I would say, I don't think so. I, and I, I would say, I'm going to try to be a historian for a second is I think over the last hundred years, the productivity gains per person are unbelievable. If you think about what a single individual can do in all forms and parts of the economy. And the, it hasn't resulted in a, like an equivalent reduction, in the amount of time spent at work. Instead, it's resulted in further specialization. So I think I saw some stat that like 200 years ago, over 40% of Americans were farmers. And we dramatically improved the productivity of farming with machinery and equipment and fertilizer. And it's now like 1% of Americans are farmers. And we, so what we did with the, all the individuals which no longer have to farm, they're now programmers and lawyers and doctors and accountants and uh, other professions, construction workers, 
So we were able to drive further specialization and further, uh, I think, unique positions and further economic opportunity as a result. So I think that's probably what will happen is there may be areas where today it's a sizable percentage of, of the workforce that may reduce, but that will happen gradually and in a way where those employees are redistributed to other areas, which may or may not have higher leverage or, or higher return, depends on uh, how things shake out. Um, I think that's probably what will happen um, because that's what's happened for all the other big productivity boosts for humanity over the last couple hundred years. So using your history lesson, um, do you believe that we'll see in computer science and other uh, scientific um, studies, AI becoming as a, as, as a topic or even as a must-have course for uh, every student? I would think so. And, and I, I would say, just like how, no matter what your profession is, um, if it's in the office, at least, you definitely need to have some level of digital proficiency, you know, with personal computers and word processing and communication and collaboration. Otherwise, it's very hard to be effective. So whether you're in accounting or in finance or in marketing or in high or high tech R&D, you need to be able to use digital tools. I think AI is going to be just like that. In all of those professions, if you don't use AI tools, you won't be able to really stay competitive uh, from an activity perspective and you'll be able to meet expectations of the workplace. And that's why I think every company is ultimately going to have to invest in teaching and educating their workforce and students on how to use these things to be more, be more productive. And it'll be just like when PCs kind of swept through offices from early 90s to mid 2000s, where it went from like single digit uh, percentage adoption um, to there truly was a PC on every desk in every home and every office, you know, the Microsoft mission statement uh, in just 15, 20 years time. So I think a way to think about it is there'll be an AI for every role and every worker uh, at home and at the office is probably what will happen over the next few years. I'd like to touch uh, one topic which relates to ethics and everybody is, you know, saying that um, it has a lot to do with AI and about how, how making sure that it's not biased, privacy, obviously, um, decisions are transparent. So beside, obviously, that everybody believes in it, what, what are the steps that you are taking as, as a company to ensure those? Yeah, so, so there's a, a few really important things that we do. Um, number one is a responsible AI culture or RAI. So we have a big focus on training and readiness and programs and processes to make it so that everybody that's building AI features at Microsoft feel that they understand and they feel accountable and responsible for shipping responsible AI. And that can be things like managing misinformation or use in, say, uh, phishing or other security uh, attacks. Um, all of those things we track very closely or, or bias or, or inflammatory uh, speech. So those are all things that we drive from a culture perspective into the team. And then this, and the benefit of having that culture of really feeling as though with great uh, capability comes great responsibility, uh, we put technical checks and balances into the product as well. So inside of Microsoft, we have a responsible AI layer and guidance about how we can filter uh, and manage responses that come back 
to make sure we're doing the right thing. And uh, we use those inside of our features and those ensure that uh, we can not only prevent issues, but also if we miss something that we can very quickly respond. So these systems allow us to, without having to do a big retrain of the model or a big re redeployment to quickly uh, shape and, and alter the, the experience to account for either malevolent behavior or accidentally bad behavior of the model. So, um, so th there's a technology component there. And the third bit is we're trying to also do this in a way where we're a global citizen. So you've probably seen in the news, there's a lot of conversations with governments and organizations about how can we use AI responsibly. So we're trying to drive that dialogue forward because it's much healthier and better to have that dialogue more broadly as opposed to just Microsoft deciding what's the right thing to do. So we're trying to really get to a good place to do as a good citizen um, from a government and, and other perspectives. So those are kind of all the three things that we're doing, culture and process, technology and capability, dialogue as a community. We're tracking all three. A few weeks back, I met uh, Sam Altman and uh, Ilya Saskover, and, and we talked about, you know, the future and how it's going to shape. They say that we are only at the beginning of the journey, and, and uh, this industry is going to uh, evolve in a, you know, as you said, in, in a very fast way. What's your perception? Where are we heading to? I would say I would definitely agree that we're very early. I mean, we're smartphones and... 2008 or something, maybe 2006 or seven, like we are very early in the journey. And I think we'll only, we'll only realize the potential of this as we get some few more generations of the models themselves, but even more important than the technology is figuring out how to apply it. And the example I'd give is ChatGPT was built on technology that was around for a while. So ChatGPT took a model, took capability, and just applied it in a novel way and drove incredible adoption. I think we are looking now, and we being Microsoft and the entire tech industry, looking for what's the ChatGPT equivalent for customer service, for sales processes, for developers, and on and on. So I think we're figuring out how to use the tech we already have to actually change workflow and process and boost productivity. And that is super early. So that is the biggest unsolved to me right now, not even the raw capability of the model. Because I'm, I'm confident that with the current capability, you can completely change so many work responsibilities and tasks. But we just haven't figured out the right way to do it. So I think on both fronts, very early, it's going to be a very exciting couple of years. You, using your analogy, are we now playing with Blackberries or we already have the... Uh the Androids and the iPhones? Yeah. So that's a great question. So we, we talk about this as like, is this the Blackberry? Like is Copilot the Blackberry or is it the iPhone? So uh, we think that uh, we are entering the Android iPhone era of AI, but we don't know yet. I, I really don't think we know uh, because it's going to take a few more big hits, big mainstream use cases to really know. And when, when there are start to be AI first products with a hundred million users, that's when I'll really, you know, okay, I think we're definitely in the iPhone Android stage. And I think we're not really there with the exception of ChatGPT. So, um, 
So I think there's a lot left to do for sure. Before we wrap and uh, coming to the end of the show today, I'd like to ask you a personal question. Beside professional life, what, what are your hobbies? So I am uh, big into college football, American football here in the U.S. Uh, so I went to Notre Dame, which is a big college football school. So I'm big into college football. I also am an avid gardener, believe it or not. Oh, really? So yes, I have a very, uh, I'm very proud of my garden. And then the third bit is very active with, with dogs. We have uh, four dogs at home and uh, do a bunch of work with the local humane society. So those are probably the, that's what keeps me busy when I'm not dreaming, eating and sleeping, thinking about generative AI. Thank you very much for your time. Um, any closing remarks from your end, things that you believe that uh, we didn't cover that uh, you would like uh, to send a message? So there? it was a great conversation. I really appreciate the chance to be on here. And if I were just to have like two parting thoughts, the first is the generative AI revolution is real and it's here. And the second thing is it's moving so fast that everybody needs to have a plan now to take advantage of it because we've never seen anything from a pace of adoption perspective. And because uh, I think there's still conversation of is it hype or is it real and how fast will it be? I say, I think it's very real and I think it's very fast. But really great conversation. Thank you for having me, Abishai. Thank you, Charles. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write our host, Avisai Salin, directly on LinkedIn.